Hi, I'm Sean O. McCarthy, founding editor of the Comics Comic. Found wherever you can type the Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people's dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. Chris Grace is an actor who grew up in Texas, went to school in North Carolina, and started his comedy career in earnest in New York City through the People's Improv Theater. Grace has appeared on TV in many shows, including This Is Us, Broad City, and he enjoyed a recurring role as Jerry on NBC's Superstore. He starred as Christian Grey in the off-Broadway touring production of Fifty Shades, the musical, the original parody, and is a longtime cast member of heralded musical improv troupe Baby Wants Candy. Grace has joined Baby Wants Candy and its offshoot Shamilton at the Edinburgh Fringe for the past decade. And last year, Roten starred in his own one-man hit show, Chris Grace as Scarlett Johansson. Grace joined me over Zoom to talk about his comedic superpowers, why he chose the pit over UCB, how it's possible to perform six shows in one day and not lose your mind, why AI might actually help make live comedy more valued, and what comes next for Grace as both a stand-up comedian and an actor. There's a lot to get to, so let's get to it! Thank you so much for doing the show. Last things first, let's start with a fun fact that might be fun only for you and me. I was one of the very few people to attend the very first and possibly only open mic at the People's Improv Theater. That's right. Uh, <laughs> this is what? Probably 2006. 2006. Six. I wasn't even living in New York yet. I was just visiting from Boston. Oh, wow. Yeah. I started that open mic. I can't remember what it was called. And it did run for a little while. But the first night of it, I believe there was me, the host, and I think two participants, one of which was a young Sean McCarthy. <laughs> I think. And I think that you both got up and did like seven minutes or something. I don't, I don't remember what happened. <laughs> yeah, it was uh, one, one up. up. Okay. Yes. But it was but it was at like 11 o'clock. That's right. But it was called One Up because I thought I was making a cool video game reference, but also it's stand up. It's one person up there. Right. Yeah. So in 2006, I was still living in Boston, working for the Boston Herald newspaper. And I was just coming down for, I was on some sort of stand up show that was just for people who were reporters or some, some gimmicky thing like that. So Mm. I was just looking for open mics where I could practice. And I found the pit, which is where I met you. What were you doing in 2006? I was doing mostly long form improv at the pit at the time. And I had been doing stand up, which is crazy. Like at that point, I had been off and on doing stand up for a while. You know, it's funny. Someone recently just asked me how long I've been doing stand up. And I, I was like calculating it out. And I was like, oh, it's been like uh, almost 18 years or something like that. Actually, I think it's turned out to be almost 20 eight years <laughs> what with like major major You're not even 28 gaps. years old come on i know i started doing it six months before i was born um <laughs> but I, what the thing is is that i first did stand up in 1995 or 96 when i first got to new york city and then i have done stand up off and on f- ever since then and there's a thing Patton oswalt said once about how people say like oh, i've been doing stand up for eight years and what they actually mean is they've done the first year of stand up four times, uh, you know, and so I've done the first three years of stand up like 
five times. But yeah, I was just thinking about how long ago that was. I actually was not counting the years correctly. <laughs> well, I suppose not not having heard Patton's thesis on this, I, I suppose just based on my very limited experience myself with stand-up is that if you if you're not doing it all the time, every time you go up, you end up having to start from scratch. Yeah, I think it's more about that when you start, of course, you go to open mics and then you might do a couple of bringers depending on your city. And then maybe you meet some comics and you get booked on indie shows and then maybe eventually you get paid. And then maybe eventually you're like, you hope to like MC somewhere or host and get paid and then hopefully you get to headline. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I've done the stage from open mic up to getting paid for like indie shows. I have done that journey probably four times in two different cities. And so it just happens to be that this time around, which maybe started around three years ago, I had like, I guess it's the main difference is that I didn't quit this time. Ah. Um, but you know, for other various reasons, I've just gotten more traction this time going around. And it's like, I will say it's hard for standups when you're first starting to get through that first one to three years. It's hard if you don't get validation from somebody saying like that it's good that you're doing it. <laughs> I mean, you can get laughs and stuff, but like if you go for a while and you're like doing open mics in your third year and not really booking anything, it's like you, you could be, it could just be that like, man, if you just stuck another 18 months out, something will click and you'll start getting opportunities, but there's no way to know that, to feel that. And it can feel kind of discouraging when you're in that trough, basically. Well, I suppose it's got to feel slightly weirder for someone like you also because you have been having success along the way with other facets yeah. of performing whether it was improv or or acting yeah I or mean, my uh, in, my independent fracking operation that i have <laughs> on my uh estate <laughs> yeah that's been a challenge for sure because i've done long-form improv since the same time like around around 2000 i started doing long-form improv and that's brought me a lot more success like a lot more direct success however improv doesn't pay very well and it's not really a thing you can like build a career around it leads to a lot of other great things and you meet a lot of great people um, but actually a big challenge for me was that i knew i could be funny in a long-form improv show I would say about six or seven years ago, I got to a point where I like, I feel like I could get on stage with almost anybody, do long form improv and be funny and like provide a fun show for the audience, almost no matter what the context is. Right. And so actually a big challenge of that is then doing stand up where I didn't feel that way for a long time. It's like when Bo Jackson like goes from one spot. By the way, I'm comparing myself to Bo Jackson. <laughs> but Bo Jackson, not to be confused with Bojack Horseman, which yeah, yeah, yeah. younger listeners Actually, might not remember Bo Jackson, but think, oh, Bojack Horseman? No. Wait, this is a more humble comparison. It's like Michael Jordan playing baseball. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like where I was like, oh, it's still very tempting sometimes to like on a night when if you're good at something else mm -hmm. on a night that you are like, I should really go out and do a couple of shows, do get some stand up sets. Or I could just go sit in with my friends doing this improv show and get a bunch of laughs. That's a tough, actually, difference. When you moved up to New York from the Carolinas, what was your initial game plan? Did you have one? Initial plan was to be an actor, actor. Mm -hmm. I'd gone to school to study acting and um, 
However, I was in a sketch group from college that all of us moved to New York. So we were doing that at the same time. We were doing this thing. I mean, I've been around a couple times through the back then, the little, uh, I'll, I'm trying to describe it, the scheme, I'll say, at mm-hmm. Caroline's that was, Hey, you can come do a show at Caroline's. You just need to bring 20 people to the show. <laughs> Uh, I forget what his name was, Eric something, the guy who used to book that. And that was just like, oh, your sketch group can come, come do the a sketch. And then like, mm-hmm. if you want to do stand up, just all you got to do is bring 20 people. And so I went through that little uh, factory a couple times right okay. after school while I was looking for like acting work. And um, I, the type that I am in terms of casting was just like not the best fit for what uh, Broadway was casting in 1995. Almost until today, but, um, <laughs> um, so I was kind of like doing some stand up, doing some sketch. I ended up working in a day job that like a, a real trap for me and maybe other people that live in New York City is that your day job can become like a career because you like have to make so much money just to like get by mm-hmm. that at a certain point I was just, it wasn't even that I cared about this career. It was literally just like, a temping job that turned into like an office job, but it was paying pretty well. And then it becomes its own kind of trap where like you work and then you don't feel like you have that much energy to like go out and do sets and stuff like that. And so then I, it wasn't until I sort of got back into like long form improv in like 2003 or four that I saw sort of this way to like perform, but I always still had this little itch in the back of my mind to like keep doing stand up because there were a lot of things that were sort of, I'd say obstacles for me getting cast in things, you know, like, the way I look and like my type and all this stuff. And I always in the back of my mind had this notion that those things were all not obstacles in standup. Nothing about those things. Like standup is very, I want to, I don't want to say welcoming, but it's like, it's a, it's a medium that you can look however you want to look. And, and as long as you're funny, that's all that matters. Sure. Um, I will say the other thing that has always stuck with me that I was like, Oh, I probably will be a standup is I went to an open mic I, I don't know where, like, I think it was in the back of like a Mexican restaurant or maybe like hamburger Harry's or something in New York. And it was like one in the morning. I was like, I went up like 11th out of 14 comics to do four minutes. But in watching the comics before me, you know, they're all of varying quality, but I was just there by myself watching them, listening to the jokes. And like, I would just think about like, Oh, how would I write this joke instead? And I realized like, Oh, I don't mind being here. Like, I don't like, I'm kind of, I feel comfortable just sitting here thinking about comedy, thinking about jokes, listening to these people tell jokes. And I was like, Oh, I think that is a sign that I might be doing this for the long term because the most dismal or one of the more dismal experiences of being a standup is those late night open mics where you get pulled at the very end of the night. And I was like, I don't really mind this. Like this isn't too bad. So how did you wind up at the pit? Instead of UCB or the Magnet. Oh, fun story. I went to the University of North Carolina School of the Arts. And this is a pure, uh, this is just my own ego defining my destiny in a way that is probably ill-advised. So <laughs> I went to uh, North Carolina School of the Arts. And at School of the Arts, our sketch group, we did a show. And then there's these I freshmen and sophomores that did a show. Uh, and that group was uh, Mr. Ass. That had, uh, Josh Perillo, Vadim Newquist, Brett Gelman, I want to say John Daly. They're obviously hilarious, but they were like freshmen and sophomores and we were seniors. Mm-hmm. And so 
five years later when I'm like looking where I want to do improv, because I'd done a little bit in college. I was like, oh, I want to get in with one of these theaters. I saw, I think it was John, John and Brett Gelman had like a regular show at UCB. And this is where my ridiculous ego comes in and the sense of like hierarchy in terms of <laughs> college, right? I was like, well, I'm a senior. I'm not going to take a class uh from a guy that was a freshman <laughs> in college, right? Also, he's like two years younger than me or whatever. Like, it's so yeah. meaningless. And so because of that, I went to the pit instead of UCB. That's the only reason. Ah. It's ridiculous. And it I, honestly, I probably would have been further along if I went to UCB. It was a classic spite story. <laughs> I have a lot of career decisions that have been uh, out of spite or um anti-authority or, you know, this person wronged me. So I've gotten a lot of fuel over the years at people um like uh, underestimating me and me getting mad and that kind of stuff. <laughs> I mean, there, there's plenty of, there's plenty of great people who've come out of the pit too, though. So it's not like you have to be UCB or bust or. No, for sure. And also like, like I said, at one point I did think like um I've gone to Edinburgh fringe for 10 years with, I would say one of the most successful improv uh, troops probably in the world. Baby wants candy. It's like I truly stand by our shows. I think our shows are some of the best that anybody does. But I was thinking like between um Baby wants candy and a group like TJ and Dave, let's say mm-hmm. people at the like upper echelon of long form improv. If you added up all of the money that the performers in those shows make annually, I think it would equal like. Maybe like what a road comic makes, <laughs> like, like the, the top 1% of long form improvisers compared to the top 30% of stand up comedians. Like the mm-hmm. industries are just like so different in terms of paying your rent. Did, uh, did the 50 Shades parody tour pay your rent? Yeah. 50 Shades. You know what? I, I, so I toured on in this, um, parody that ended up off Broadway called 50 Shades, the musical parody. And that was great. Like, um, it was a really interesting process because I loved doing the show a lot. And actually I do think that I have this superpower. I think one of my superpowers as a stand-up comedian is that I have no issue doing the same material over and over. And I don't seem to get tired of it. And I Mm -hmm. think that was a muscle I built on this tour because doing the same show six nights a week, two different cities a week for nine months. I never got tired of it. Like I loved finding all the little comic nuances in it. Um, that is probably what you would consider more a skill set for like a theater performer to be able to like perform something for a year and try to find new, fresh ways to perform it. And yeah, that, that show actually prayed pretty well for like a non-union tour, but the, it, it highlighted this other thing about like theater, which is like, I love theater. Like, theater is so is such a uh rewarding two hours three hours experience of like really going and performing something for somebody linearly and being there with that audience and every night the audience is different and then the huge drawback of theater is literally that you have to show up eight times a week to do it (laughs) like it gets it does get uh i never got tired of the material the routine of it does start to wear on you after a while and I guess it's like any other job in the sense right, that let's it, say it, it becomes your job. Yeah. It starts to feel a little like it's really hard to be creative in other ways when you're in a run like that, mm. because you're expending a lot of creative energy in the show itself. Even if it's a scripted thing that you've been doing for months, it's still creative. And 
it it, be, it becomes hard, I think, if you're doing a show like that to then go like, okay, the show ended at 11. Let me go try to do a open mic or a set somewhere. Like, you really just want to go home. And then your call time the next day is like 6 p.m. So you wake up at like noon <laughs> if you're me. So, yeah, I, I, but I love doing that show. Um, it, it added a lot to my like confidence in terms of being just on stage. I think that like the last couple of years, my comedy has been more self-assured be, probably because of building up stage chops for like 20 years. And I do think there's a part of that that it's hard to articulate that is separate from whether or not my jokes are better written than they were before. Cause they're not, if anything, they're worse. <laughs> Dude, the 50, I mean, you were the star in 50 shades. You, you know, you were, you were the Jamie Dornan. That's right. Uh, well, I like to say that Jamie Dornan was the Chris Grace of <laughs> the films. Did that experience, you know, being the leading man in a touring off Broadway production, did that give you the confidence or did that also like help propel your, your career in terms of, getting other parts or deciding to move from New York to LA? No, I mean, yeah. So this was a really interesting thing I learned about. My life has been a lot of like learning about that. I'm not what I thought I was, Okay, which is when I was a kid in high school and college, I thought I was somebody that worked really hard, but I was not that talented. And then in college, at some point I realized, Oh, actually a teacher told me this in like one of these like year end evaluations. And he said, you are really talented, but you're lazy. <laughs> and I was like, oh, that's the opposite of what I thought I was. <laughs> and similarly about this question of like being the lead, like I actually think that a lot of my temperament is better suited to be the lead in something, but my type is not typically what you would cast as the lead in something. So sort of like um James Gandolfini is clearly like much more suited to be the lead of something because when he was the lead in Sopranos, it was, that's some of the best acting I've ever seen my whole life. And it's, and it's across five, five or six seasons. Right. And it's such a sustained, amazing performance that builds on itself and it's layered and all that stuff. But really before Sopranos, James Gandolfini was like somebody you would put as the like bodyguard or something like, you know, he wasn't the type of person that you would make the lead of a show. And so actually I feel that from 50 shades, I felt that as well, that like I can do the thing where like I show up and provide a very specific character energy because the show needs a thing, like a specific effect to happen because somebody needs to come in and be really sarcastic or needs to be really goofy for a comic effect. Mm -hmm. But like, I think actually my, like the way the spin of my internal character is actually more for like built for the long haul in terms of, um, you know, I, I, I'm only just thinking about this now because you asked me, but like, it's possible that that's why I'm more comfortable as a stand up than I was before. And that as I have been like headlining that, like the headlining doesn't really, like I might feel more comfortable as a headliner than a person that has to come in and do six minutes, you know? Right. So you mentioned people like you or people like James Gandolfini have to, they have to overcome this hurdle that, that is kind of placed upon you by casting directors or Hollywood in gen or the general public to force them to see you in a different light. Right. Yeah. So, so you've, 
you felt that throughout your career. I know just on a personal level that you've also had to deal with the loss of loved ones over yeah. the, this course. How did, how did those experiences change your own goals or, or ideas of what you even wanted out of a career or out of life? So it's funny because you asked me before why I moved to Los Angeles and it's because my partner died. <laughs> that's okay. why. That's the real reason because I was living in an apartment in Jersey City and the idea of like rebuilding a life in New York, getting a new apartment, moving a bunch of stuff, dealing with the sheer amount of physical items that you have when someone dies mm-hmm. that you, that like you try to clean up an apartment full of somebody who's died all of their stuff you can open like one box before you oh. just get overwhelmed with like emotion right and then i mean a bunch of stuff has happened to me which is probably what my next Edinburgh show is about <laughs> but um the thing that i have thought ever since then that happened in 2014 but like all their stuff has happened to me since then two things have happened one is that i don't actually this is my uh, other superpower as a comedic performer is that I don't really care about any of this stuff anymore. None of this really matters. Like, especially for improv, I don't care if the show is good or not. Um, <laughs> and I'm getting there with stand up. And mm-hmm. so like, and I don't, and I, so I, what I need to remember is that like, I need to still prepare for things for stand up and, and do the, you know, the pro- professional part where I like, you know, write material and that kind of stuff. But in the moment when I'm on stage, I don't really care. Like, it's like none of it. It, none of it matters. And I, I mean, obvi- I think this is probably pretty obvious, but like having an, a, an attitude like that has actually kind of made me like bulletproof to like truly bombing on stage. Like not only have I like when I've bombed it, like it hasn't been that big a deal, but I actually haven't bombed as hard as I used to either. Because like, I think the audience can kind of feel that if it's, if the audience isn't having to like take care of your ego, whether or not it goes well or not, I think that maybe it helps them relax or something, but like, that's been the main thing. Oh. And then the other thing that's happened is that because of other health things that have happened in my family, I've just been way more active about like, I need to like start making money doing these things. And I, I've, I've like been a lot more productive over the last two years. I've like, taken on multiple projects at once. Um, and I have just, uh, speaking of other things I've learned about myself that weren't true or that I thought I was another way, I'm actually way more productive when I have like five things going on at once. More productive than I would be if I only had one of those projects by itself with nothing else. Mm-hmm. My my ability to procrastinate when I have one thing to do is insane. <laughs> but somehow if I feel like slightly overwhelmed, I get a bunch of stuff done on a whole bunch of different texts. Your your point about stand up, I think you're right in terms of how how much the audience reaction depends upon your confidence on stage and and mm-hmm. whether they believe that you believe what you're talking about. And if you don't, and if you're not so emotionally and personally invested, then it's so much more freeing for you as a stand up to just sell anything to the audience because you're not you're not so contingent upon like one bit getting a big laugh. Yeah. And then the idea of like realizing that nothing matters or, or what have you, I feel like that's, that's very common advice I've heard in relation to going on auditions that Mm -hmm. 
the people who go on auditions and are like, oh, whatever, you know, if I get it, I get it. If I don't, I don't. That somehow that that helps you book things. I mean, one of my friends who books a lot, like an order of magnitude more than me. And, and I have been told specifically by my agent and other people in the business not to emulate this person's behavior, <laughs> but even though it's, even though it's successful. Well, this person will actively make it seem like he doesn't want to work on your project. Uh, like it's annoying that he has to come in and audition for your commercial or television show mm-hmm. and doesn't really learn the material. Like he just, uh, Oh, he shows up late as well. <laughs> and uh, it's funny. It was so funny. He's above, because, like, so he's above it. He's above it all. Yeah. Well, and then they, they feel like, Oh, we, we really want him. I mean, and he's also extremely talented, but I so remember, it's like, it's um, like negging. It's classic negging, I guess. It is exactly. Um, this person that I'm describing is, um, mystery from the pickup artist. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, it's funny because I, I know my friend does that. And then like literally right after that, my agent was like, do not do what he does. Do not. <laughs> so what did you do for like This Is Us or Superstore? For This Is Us, you know, I don't know what I did for this. I mean, This Is Us lo- lo- was a pretty small part. But I think that I do think for a little while, there's a very common thing that happens in auditions where people are just like, play it dry, play it dry. Don't play it comedically, play it dry. And I think this is a, like a response to maybe they're having a bunch of people come in and be like, <laughs> you know, like doing like comedy with a capital C. Mm-hmm. And my style has always been like the complete opposite of that in terms of I, I would rather not sell a joke and lose maybe 10% of the people, but for the other 80 or even the 30% of people who really get the joke, it really hits harder. So like, I've always been willing to do that. And so I think for camera work, that can translate in a good way sometimes. So, cause like, I would say my stuff in This Is Us and Superstore and mostly the other stuff I've done, most of it's been really dry, which is also like my sense of humor. So it's like, I don't feel like I'm putting something on, but, um, I have two great bits of advice for comedians. One is I do think that like the way that you're funny with like your partner. Like when you're with someone for a long time and you can be funny and goofy with them in a way that is like you wouldn't show anybody else. If you can put that into your comedy, like that you show the public, it can be really special because it's like something that only you do. Like mm-hmm. there's something about that thing that you do to make somebody laugh that um, I, it feels less protected to me. And I think for me, at least like the comedians I love, the less protected they are, the better, or at least even the illusion of being, I have no idea whether or not like Stuart Lee is actually vulnerable on stage or not. You know, <laughs> like Stuart Lee always talks about this character, Stuart Lee that he plays. Right. But while I'm watching him, I believe that it's him, you know, and then I just, my other, uh, this, I really, any standups that listen to this, I really hope they take this to heart when they're auditioning for television or mm-hmm. movies, which is that, Stand-up comics, the vast majority of stand-up comics do not have a lot of subtext in their material. They very rarely say one thing and mean something else because of just the nature of performing stand-up. In narrative material, in dramatic comedic material, you have to be able to say one thing and mean something else. Like, that's as simple as it is. And a lot of comics don't do that. So when you see them, when you see your favorite stand-up comic in a sitcom or a, you know, single camera streaming comedy or whatever, There, there's never that extra layer, or often there's not that extra layer of like, I'm looking at a real human being that isn't used to like just saying exactly what they mean in an articulated, constructed way. 
that little extra layer is not there a lot of times. That's my tip of the day. <laughs> <laughs> Something that has lots of layers is your one person show about Chris Grace, Scarlett Johansson. Yes. Um, when ScarJo first, the announcement uh, Ghost in the Shell came out, did it immediately crystallize in your head that you needed to address this in some way? Or is it something that only kind of materialized over time where you're like, oh, this is my way into telling my story? No. So, uh, so the response, the idea of doing a show in response did ha- occur to me pretty soon after that movie came out. That was in 2017. Mm-hmm. And it was one of those things that I'd never done a solo show before. And uh, I don't know if people, if you can relate or other people can relate, but there's this thing sometimes where you're like, I got this project I want to do someday. And boy, when I do it, it's going to be so good. And then you just sit on it for years and years. And in the back of your head, you're always like, yeah, but I still wanted to do that one thing. Mm-hmm. And I actually pitched it to a couple of like competitions where it was like, send us a pitch. And if you win this, we'll, you get a little workshop of it. And for a couple of years, it didn't hit with anybody a friend of mine was like, Hey, you should do a show at fringe. And I ended up doing it uh, about a year ago. Uh, as of this recording, I started like doing readings of it and stuff. But interestingly, I would say the first version and a half of that script had very, very little of me in it. It was almost all just a, bi- a satirical biography of Scarlett Johansson. And then a couple things, my friend Ashley Ward suggested that it was a little too critical of her right off the top. Mm-hmm. And, oh, what if it was framed as, actually, I'm a big fan of hers, and it sort of just goes haywire from there. And then I did at one point think, like, oh, it'd be – I think people were asking me, like, well, what's, what are you going to do if she ever hears about the show? And I was like, oh, it would be funny if she did a show that was a biography of me. <laughs> and then from there, it just kind of, like, spiral. I mean, that show kind of spirals in general. Right. Um, And so, so it was a pretty late development that, like, my – that I was in the show as much as I am. Okay. That's interesting. Cause it, you know, seeing it at the fringe, it felt like it was already, it was it felt like it was fully formed and ready to go. But I mean, to be fair to other performers who have never done the fringe in Edinburgh, a lot of them, the standups or the people who are doing one person shows, they, they show up in Scotland pretty cold. They don't know what they're getting into. Whereas, you know, you mentioned before, Yes. You're you're an Edinburgh vet with one of the most popular shows the Fringe has with Baby Wants Candy doing musical improv. How did it feel going into Edinburgh last year doing your show, but also you were doing Baby Wants Candy, you were doing Shamilton, which is mm-hmm. improv based off of uh, the musical Hamilton. You yep. were doing other like one-off duos and, and other shows. Yeah, I was doing Laughing Stock, which is a stand-up um group show. I was doing that like four times a week as well. I was I was never daunted by it, weirdly. Like I don't know why. I, it was interesting to me that I really throughout the month, people get kept being sort of like they thought I was insane. Because mm-hmm. I w- I did I had three nights last August where I did six shows in a day. But I don't know. Like I <laughs> part of me first of all, like my show is an hour. The improv shows, like you said, I don't have to prepare anything for. I'm getting to do improv for the, the most, the most amazing audiences, like the most improv friendly audiences in the world with my friends who are the best improvisers in the world. So like 
I was never tired of that, you know, like that was like, especially doing baby wants candy, doing baby wants candy is like, um, it's just so well received by the audience that I would, I, I would challenge any performer to be like, Oh, I'm so tired of doing, I'm so tired of doing this show that I don't have to prepare for that. I get a standing ovation at the end of and, <laughs> and almost 300 people daily are wanting to talk to me afterwards and tell, tell us how great the show was like, Oh, what a <laughs> challenge that was, you know? Right. Um, I mean, I've been in Edinburgh before where I've been in shows that were not popular. And I think that's a much more daunting prospect of doing a show 27 days in a row where you're not even sure if 10 people are going to come to see the show. I think emotionally that's much, much harder. And I think that I've built up enough cred at Edinburgh that like, like even the show I'm going to do this coming August, I, I don't know that it's going to be as easy to market as the Scarlett Johansson show was it like Scarlett Johansson show did have this like built in thing. I would like, tell people the title and they'd be like, Oh, that's funny. Or they see the poster, right? right? The show coming up. If my show coming up is all about death, I like, I don't know how easily to market it is going to be, but I think I'll still be able to like pull a decent crowd just because of my reputation and the stuff I've done. I was cautiously optimistic about the month this past year. I just had this feeling that I think I thought it would go well. I think the last couple of years have been defined by like, I have these feelings that like my ideas are going to go over pretty well. And I guess I'm not that scared if they don't, but I've had a lot of opportunities this last year where I'll do a show somewhere and I'll write like a bit just for that show, like just for that one venue, that one night, that one context, I have no chances to run it. And I'm like, I think this bit will be pretty funny. And like, most, I'd say 80% of the time, it's been like, oh yeah, it worked out. It was great. And then the other 20% was like, eh, it was okay. But like, I tried, you know, I have felt recently like very, like actually love AI and mid journey. And like, you know, you recently wrote about the, uh, Carlin AI special and all that stuff. What I love about that stuff is like, it's just going to make live performance more and more valuable like your ability to like go into a space and see an actual human being maybe try something that's only for you that night like i think that is truly like i think that's going to be so special to people and it really is special to me when i see stuff so where do you see the scarlett johansson show going moving forward and where do you see everything for you going forward i have uh in the works potentially filming scarlett johansson as a special of some kind to be released and then i'm touring it like i have some opportunities to tour it this year and next year believe it or not i have like an offer for july 2025 i'm like sure i'll be available <laughs> uh, and then I, I i actually am bringing it back to edinburgh for five days because it was there were a lot of people that didn't get to see it um, and then I'll be doing a new show there. So like this next two years is like trying to bring the Scarlet show to as many people as possible, trying to work on a new show and trying to do as much stand up as I can in that period. And I assume at some point I will be uh, at a lunch eating Dishoom with Sean McCarthy. Well, I look forward to that lunch and probably another uh, show with Stuart Lee. So, uh, yeah, right. Chris Grace, thank you so much for, for sitting down with me. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Sean. This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was post-produced by Alex Brazell at Showbiz Studios. The music was by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Giggle Chick. 
If you enjoyed listening, please check out my Substack called Piffany at piffany.substack.com for transcripts, bonus commentary, and expert analysis about comedy, show business, and more. I'm your host, Sean O. McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.